Let's pray. Our Father God, holy and triumphant you are. And so we come together to praise you for that. And that you would invite us into that. Lord, that you would make a way for us to come into that and enjoy that instead of being swallowed up by your magnificence. And so, Lord, we just praise your majesty that has been shared with us. And Lord, we hope that the meditations of these this coming week uh, would bring renewal to our heart, would bring zeal in our worship and our lives as ambassadors for your truth and your gospel. So Lord, we ask that you do it now, because we know that you do that through your word. We know that your spirit brings to mind all that you have said, to therefore give us confidence and assurance and faith. And so Lord, we open your word as your people, and we expect these things, because you've promised them to us. And so we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Palm Sunday, Andy and I were just talking about this, it's always been kind of a weird day for me, and I'm not sure I've really preached a lot of Palm Sunday sermons, I kind of <laughs> skip over it sometimes. And the, and the one reason that it strikes me as odd a lot is because of the scene, right? It's this glorious scene. It's it's a scene of triumph as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for the final time. And but you also realize that the people that are praising him and worshiping him and are expecting triumph to come from him, they don't really understand what kind of triumph it'll be. And so there's kind of this weird dichotomy of they should be praising Jesus. Jesus is worthy to be praised for all time. And then you also have them not really understanding why they're praising him. They'll find out. And in fact, as has been often mentioned, uh, these people who are praising him and laying down palm branches and cloaks and all this sort of thing um, may be the very ones who are going to cry out for him to be crucified later on that awful Friday. And so it's, it's, it's just a unique scene in some ways. And I think as you make your way through the Gospels to investigate the triumphal entry in every Gospel, uh, you pick up little things here or there that help put the pieces together. And one thing that was helpful to me in putting the pieces together about this triumphal entry uh, was in Luke 19. So I'll begin here in in verse 12 of John 12. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna means save, we pray. It's It's a cry that comes from places throughout the scripture and the expectation of the Messiah and the hopes and what he will do for God's people in the midst of where they're living in a dark world. But looking at Luke 19 and verses 39 through 40, it it helps me to understand that even though these people are, 
are kind of misunderstanding or misinformed about uh, where they are or how they are worshiping Jesus. Uh, Luke gives this at the end of this scene. The Pharisees, they, in the crowd, they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then Jesus says in verse 40, um, After this I looked in, or There we go. I was going to say that's not right. Uh, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus there is acknowledging that what they're doing and praising and calling him as Savior and King and the one who's come in the name of the Lord is right and good. And at the same time, they're misinformed in it. In other words, Jesus is the only one who at all times and in all spaces and in all spheres throughout all the universe is worthy to be praised. Their worship is misinformed, which will cause them to take part in his crucifixion and not in his glorification. But they are at all times to worship him. In other words, Jesus is saying the whole of creation will worship its creator one way or another. It will be inevitable. Whether the things that seem like inanimate objects are called to do it or not, we are called to do it. It kind of reminds you of the scene in Philippians where when Jesus appears, all knees will bow and all tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I've taught you before about that passage, and that doesn't mean that everyone who does that will be His people. That only means that they are acknowledging what is before them. So whether they're misinformed or believing or not about the triumph that Jesus is bringing, it is right to acknowledge who has come into the city. And, and the discussion there in Luke helps us pick up on that. And Jesus, you've got to realize this about Jesus. Whenever worship is directed towards him in the Gospels, he accepts it. Which tells us what? That he's God. And, and the, the apostles and the disciples, they make sure to uh, rebuke that, okay, to push that away from themselves because it's only directed rightly in one spot. And so Jesus takes that. Now, you and I, what is the implication for us today? Well, we have a full biblical canon to express to us what this triumph actually was in Christ on the cross, and so we can go to these scenes, we can come to our worship fully informed on who and, and why we are worshiping the Lord, which should what? Bring all the more zeal, all the more joy, all the more energy, all the more focus, because we know exactly that Jesus isn't coming in to win uh, uh, the political uh, battle for us. Jesus is coming in to win the victory over sin and death, which is by far a greater enemy that still reigns today. And so we want to come with great and awesome expectation and hope and faith when we come to worship that when Jesus is seen riding in on this donkey's colt that Palm Sunday, he is riding in to take his place willingly on the cross to defeat the greatest enemy that ever existed. And so when we sing, 
Hosanna. When we cry out for him to save, we pray. When we pronounce that he is blessed and he's come in the name of the Lord, when we call him king, we understand hopefully the full uh, uh, magnificence of all of that. We, we, we say that with a revelation of the end of time. We say that with a, with a great scene in Revelation 4 and 5 uh, written for us and captured for us that we can expect and hope in where Jesus takes the scroll from the Father's hand and, and begins to reign over all the universe in such a beautiful and awesome and powerful way and that we uh, spend our days worshiping him. Even the angels and the magnificent ones are worshiping this lamb who was slain, who has, who has won the victory. And so we proclaim these things in such a greater way than was seen on that Palm Sunday. This Palm Sunday and the next Palm Sunday and all those thereafter are gaining steam and momentum until we get to that great scene around the throne where the, where the Lamb is reigning in glory and complete victory with His people. And so maybe that's how we need to look at each Easter is that we're picking up and we're getting closer and closer and closer until there is a final and eternal triumphal scene and shout from the heavens. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches are a Jewish national symbol of triumph. So much so that we even see this in this heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 7. We're proclaiming His victory, not ours. He's invited us into it. He's, he's done it on our behalf. He has made us uh, conquerors through Him, but it's His victory So we wave palm branches, we lay them down, we bring all gifts and all symbols of life before him to acknowledge that this king is worthy, this king is victorious. And it didn't even require the the lives of any of his royal subjects, it required one life. Caiaphas, the high priest this year that Jesus crucified, not knowingly, but prophesied by the will of God, that it's better for one man to die for a whole nation than that the whole nation die. He was communicating to Pharisees who didn't believe, and even through himself who at the time didn't believe, that Jesus is the one who's winning the victory. That time and time again, when, when you go through, even we're in the midst of uh, our First Thessalonians series when you look through that, when you look through the, the Messianic Psalms like Psalm 22, it is always seen that the Lord is the one who wins the victory. If you go back into the Old Testament and you watch the Lord rescue His people, you watch the Lord redeem His people, uh, you watch the Lord uh, bring them back through the judges time and time again, you see one singular thing, that the Lord Himself does it. That He wields the power in His right hand over the whole of the universe and directs kings and kingdoms to where they are to go at all times, and he alone does it. One time I had somebody say to me, who thought they were 
tough and bold that they can't wait to ride into battle with Jesus on that great uh, apocalyptic day. And I said, he doesn't need you. He, he, he's coming on a white horse and a sword is coming from his mouth and he will slay the nations and you will be in awe. He is mighty. And yet, what's, what's the scene here when he comes in to Jerusalem? He's on a young donkey. A donkey. Well, you have to understand that as the Jews had awaited their Messiah, and as we read our Old Testaments and await the Messiah that's to come when we turn the page, this is a signal of a king. That he is riding on this new, this untouched, this pure beast. He's riding in on victory. Everything is settled. Everything is as final. So he doesn't need a war horse. He doesn't need a great, awesome beast. He is at peace. This donkey is a symbol that that the victory is basically won. That, that we can be at ease or at peace. And, and what they don't understand is really what that, that ease and that peace is and, and with who it is. And so they're seeing that, hey, this means Rome is out. We are taken back Jerusalem, baby. We got this. He, after all, the last chapter, he just raised somebody from the dead. Man, we're here. Made it. Except that's not what he's going to do. He's going to do something bigger and greater, despite the fact that they don't believe, despite the fact that they don't want any part of that, that they can't understand it or see it despite the fact that they know that was prophesied, but that has no bearing in their mind because the greatest enemy is only the one at their front door, not the one within their own heart. We act like that sometimes too. We expect Jesus to conquer this enemy and that many enemy from outside ourselves without looking inside ourselves. What's he coming to triumph over? He's coming to set me free from the pangs of death that's brought about by sin. My sin. Your sin. Am I affected by other people's sin? Sure. But how am I most greatly affected and how do I most greatly affect other people? My own sin. My own sin that I'm a slave to, the Bible tells me. I'm in chains to it. And in fact, that's a place that I want to be. I don't want to move outside of that. I know that, Master. I'm like Israel in the wilderness. Send me back to Egypt. Until there becomes a new Master. God sets me free. God calls me to Himself. God lets me know what a good Master looks like. In fact, a good Father. And not only uh, calls me a servant of his, which is the greatest post that anybody could ever hold, but calls me a son through Jesus Christ, who won a victory to bring people out of the chains of sin and death and into the bondage with a loving and beautiful Savior. 
Instead, we want the tax man to leave us alone, or we want the Democratic Party to go away, which could all be good things. But hey, the worst thing that is occurring is the fact that our hearts are at war to uh, disobey God, to profane His name, to profane His image on our lives, to keep us silent about the true triumph that Jesus marched into Jerusalem in. That's what we want. That's how you change the world. You change it with the triumph of Jesus over sin. The rest will take care of itself. So they're saying something correct here in verse 13. Save, we pray. Save. We want saved. We need saved. And in fact, he is the only one who can save. He's coming in the name of the Lord to do it. God is going to accomplish through this king in Matthew and Mark. Uh, they make mention that this is the son of David, that the kingdom of David is coming to reign again. You, you have to remember that uh, some, it's, been, it's been centuries since they have had a king on the throne from the line of David, and they know, they know that, that David was promised an eternal king to reign over God's people, and they, and they haven't seen one for so long, and so this must be him, Right? It's funny, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, most people, not all, most people were not willing to call him the son of David because then that would mean he's the Messiah. That would mean that he's come to say that he is the king over God's people, the anointed one. But when he raises Lazarus from the dead and when they think he's coming in to, uh, to take back Jerusalem for them and give them their nation of Israel back, oh, then he's the son of David. When they know that his mother and father descend from the line of David, in fact, it would not even be very hard to uncover that he was born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. They still ignore those things until he can give them what they want. And I've always said one of the greatest problems with us as Christians is that we don't We don't want enough from God. We don't desire enough good, enough joy, enough peace, enough pleasure. We settle for the things that the world has to offer in those arenas without ever seeking or or understanding or, or taking thought of the fact that God has things like that to give. And if God is who he is, if he can dispense good and peace and joy and pleasure Wouldn't we want God-sized things of those nature than what the world has to offer? But we don't have to think like that, and so we sin. We take the world's offer of peace and joy and pleasure instead of waiting and asking for God's peace and joy and pleasure. So it's it's a very temporal scene here. You know, As Jesus was ending his public earthly ministry, he spoke only in parables. Spoke only in parables. As a way to conceal the kingdom from those who don't believe and as a way to reveal the kingdom to those who do believe. It was like a two-sided coin here. 
And that's kind of what this scene is. Jesus, fully aware of the triumph that he is going to win. It's a sure thing. The rest of the crowd has yet to understand what that is. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is still going to accomplish his mission. He's still going to ride in on this donkey. He's still going to allow this triumphant scene to be shown. He's still going to do these things. And later, some will understand. Verse 14. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26. We skipped over that. But there, again, we see where a lot of them are taking this phrase, how they're understanding Jesus coming in on this donkey. They're, they're saying these things because they're recognizing that these have been written. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They know these verses. They know these so much more than we know our own Bibles. They know these things. They're expecting a Messiah, a Savior, especially as, as things get tighter on them from other kingdoms and other uh, kings and other empires. They, they, they hold on to these more and more, which is good. But they're looking for freedom in the wrong place, like we've already discussed. Freedom from the wrong thing. There's a greater enemy, a greater threat. But they know. They know who's coming. They just don't understand what for. And then this reference of this king on a donkey's colt. You can see this back in Genesis 49, verses 10 through 11. Jacob's pronouncing blessing on his sons before he passes away, his 12 sons. And he gets to Jacob, and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, or it gets to Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the bloods of grapes. The blessing pronounced on Judah is the blessing of the king that is to come. The one who's going to rule over God's people and and the obedience of the nations is going to be directed towards him. And this is how he's coming. Jesus refers to himself as the vine. And through that vine, all life flows to all its branches. And those branches bear fruit through that life that flows through them. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You you see how specific the Old Testament gets when it talks about the Messiah. And yet how we become so unaware or so blinded to, to what he's coming to triumph over. 
or who he is. You can go to the first chapter of this gospel and you can hear John talk about how he came to his own people, the people who belong, all the prophets in the law and, 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 and all these prophecies about their king that is to come. And he came to them and they didn't know him. They didn't know him. If you had these specific descriptions about where he was from, how he was going to be born, what he was going to do, and how he was going to ride in and triumph, and then you saw those things all fall into line and were still unable to call him Messiah when he goes to the cross, shows us how unbelieving we are just because of circumstances, just because of things we see. Romans asks the question, who hopes for what he sees? But if you hope for what you don't see, you wait for it in patience. That type of hope and faith would have caused the disciples not to scatter, but to sit at the foot of the cross and to sit outside the tomb and wait with patience for that victory to make itself known. But they couldn't. They couldn't even pray with Jesus. They couldn't understand the weight of the moment because they could not believe in everything that had been written and promised to them now coming true. They couldn't see it. It's what sin does to us. It allows us to have the very word of God before us and not be able to believe it. Not be able to see it. You and I often think that if we were living back then and if we saw Jesus riding on this donkey and if we knew all those scriptures and if we saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, then we would have been uh, uh, at Golgotha and we would have stood there faithfully at the cross. That's a bold thing to say. Because I know, because the Lord has shown me how unbelieving I can be. How much I don't yet believe. How much I don't yet know to believe. He has made himself so abundantly clear. As Ray prayed for all of us that he would continue to do that. In great patience and great mercy and great grace. That that he would allow us to take these words and not only just to understand them or hide them away with some sort of intellectual ability, but to actually believe these words and therefore to live according to these words. To know that what he said is what he did, therefore what he says he will do. And you and I are are, are not those who are going to be blindsided by the fact that he goes to a cross, but you and I have seen what happened three days after that cross and what that cross actually meant for us. And so we can read the book of Revelation with full hope and full joy and full expectation, which will give us great endurance and great faith and great confidence in this world and in this life that the victory is won. Jesus already rode in and he already accomplished it and he already defeated the, vic- the, the enemy. And therefore, all we have left to do is to proclaim that victory, to go throughout the villages, to have parades, to tell everybody that this has been won. It's finished. He said it was finished. He proved 
it was finished. Over 500 people, and that might just include men, which it could have been even more than that, including their families, saw him in victory, in glory, after he was risen from the grave to prove to them that this was accomplished. God made good on his word. Therefore, why are we not believing him? Jesus prays a few chapters later as he is very close to the cross. And he prays for you. That's not a general you. That's everybody in this room today who is going to believe or believes. He prays that that would take place through the testimony of those who saw. Those who not had the opportunity to put together the promises of God, the prophecy of God, which with the actual visualization of Jesus on the cross and then out of the tomb. He prayed for me and he prayed for you. That Father... These who would believe through their word. Through their word. So we continue to pass this word. It's been verified, actually, historically, physically. Been verified that Jesus rode in, that Jesus existed, that Jesus taught, that Jesus was crucified, and that there was an empty tomb. And the testimony has been passed down and passed down and passed down and been held and maintained faithfully by the will of God. And so we're just awaiting, awaiting for more people to understand these things. Verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. What does Jesus say the Spirit's coming to do? The Spirit is coming to remind them of everything that Jesus said. Everything that Jesus said is not only what's encapsulated in these Gospels and, and beyond the stuff that's not recorded, but it is the whole of the Bible. Old and New Testaments is God's Word, and Jesus is the Word of God, John tells us. Therefore, when the people understood what was written, they understood what Jesus said, and they remembered by the Spirit, in Luke 24 and 27, says this, Jesus on this Emmaus road with two disciples uh, who did, did, were trying to figure out how Jesus was crucified uh, after he had risen somebody from the dead and, and all this stuff, and they're just trying to wrap their head around what's going on. And And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I told a group the other day, I said, you understand that Jesus did that before he showed them any scars. Or before he he, uh, let them have understanding or, or knowledge that he was standing before them as the risen Savior. He explained to them what was written about him. Abraham tells the rich man in Luke 16, as the rich man's in Hades and Lazarus is in paradise, the rich man's wanting um, 
somebody from the dead to go to proclaim to his father's house what's to take place when they die. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, then they're not going to believe anybody that raised from the dead. In other words, if, if you can't have faith on the rock-solid, proven time and time again, sure, verified words and prophecies of God, then you will not believe the greatest miracle to ever take place. That's how you have a group of Jews who come up with another story about the empty tomb other than the fact that Jesus is alive. Unbelief is a wicked enemy. It it causes you to not even be able to acknowledge reality. Do, Do you see now what the greatest enemy is that can keep you from reveling and enjoying and partaking in the glory of God in Jesus Christ and becoming a son and an heir through him just because you don't want to believe it? We'll get into that in a minute. Verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Sometime we'll take a walk through history and we'll begin to understand the importance of God's word, how he preserved it, how he kept it, how he passed it down from generation to generation, how his testimonies are sure and proven, how we can be absolutely positive that when Jesus said not a dot will pass away from the law, until all these things are finished, we can understand how God has carried that out, really, and practically, by looking at history and these men that carried this word, who were, who were embodied by the Spirit of Christ, who were protected uh, by the hand of God, and who were able to bring this word here and there, and into this language and that language, and therefore were to continue this testimony of the risen Savior through His written word. His word is so important. His word's important because it's, it causes us to ask whether we believe him or not. Lauren and I were talking this morning that the, the two roots of all sin, the two beginnings of all sin are pride and unbelief. Everything can be traced back to that. Everything. And unbelief is a wicked, nasty disease. Number one, that we inherited from the sin of Adam and Eve. And number two, that we are more than glad to walk in by our nature. And so it's it's a glorious thing in verse 16 that they remember these things have been written about him. In other words... God promised, and he made good on his promise. Don't we like that when people make good on their word? You and I don't do that perfectly. Never will. But God does every single time. Every single time. Luke 24, later in that chapter, verses 44 through 48, 
Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, much like verse 16, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What's a witness do? He testifies to what he saw. And what happens in the court when he testifies? It's recorded. It's recorded. He testifies in full knowledge that if his testimony is wrong, he is worthy of a a severe penalty. That his testimony could affect outcomes. And so we seek to place those people under oath as much as we can before God, that what they are saying would be true, that they would be bound to only speak what is true. And so we can investigate those apologetic reasons for why their testimonies are sure and true, and it's a good thing to do that. But folks, even if we verify that, even if someone is to raise from the dead, 